Hey, good morning, everybody. Uh, good to see you this morning. Hope you're enjoying each other's uh, conversations. Sorry to break it up. Uh, my name is Justin. I'm the executive pastor here at Midtown. I uh, just want to introduce myself and welcome you, particularly if you're new visiting with us. Really glad that you're here. Would really encourage all of you to fill out that connection card, like Krista said. It's a way for us to uh, know that you're here, get back in touch with you, tell you more about the church, as well as the prayer requests. We really love to pray for you. I uh, hope that you would consider that. Uh, today, we are actually jumping back in uh, to the book of Acts. If you remember this last fall, we did Acts 1 through about six and a half, and now we're going to pick up the new series in Acts. If you're new with us here, uh, we kind of rotate between like just teaching straight through different books of the Bible, and then we'll take a break sometimes and we'll pick like a topic like we just did Meals with Jesus, and then we'll kind of do more of a topical type of thing for a few weeks. And so now we're jumping back into the book of Acts, which I think is going to be really fun. It's the second part of Acts, and really, Acts can really... The whole book itself is kind of laid out in Acts 1.8. I think we might have it on the screen here. Acts 1.8 says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And really, this is kind of a, a verse that's like the template for the whole book of Acts. And so what we see all the way through, midway through chapter 6, is Jerusalem. And so he promised that the Spirit would come upon them and what God did in Jerusalem. And now we're going to study over the next two months what happens in Judea and Samaria. So from about the mid, mid chapter 6 to the end of chapter 12, it's God sending his people out. Our title for our sermon series, Sent with Love, he sends us out to Judea and Samaria. And then later, I think uh, sometime maybe next fall, we're going to pick back up again and we'll finish it out where we go to the ends of the earth, which will be really fun. So if you're with us during the fall, or if you know much about the book of Acts, we can tell you just real briefly what happens in these first, first section of Jerusalem. So the disciples were actually given this great commission by Jesus, and then they go up into an upper room, and they're waiting on, on the Holy Spirit to come upon them. And when he does in chapter 2, that Peter preaches the first sermon, and like 3,000 people believe. And then you kind of go through this period where multiple times they would either be praying together or they'd be preaching, and thousands and thousands of people would put their faith in Jesus, all in Jerusalem. So much to where it gets to chapter 5, verse 28, where it says that the, the, they were being brought before the uh, authorities, and the authorities questioned them. And while they're questioning them, one of the things they say to the apostles is, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. And so this whole idea of saturation, we talk about that as a church, the idea of saturating our people groups are trying to get the gospel to every man, woman, and child. They actually saw it happen in Jerusalem, the entire place of Jerusalem, the whole city. Everyone had heard the word of the Lord. And so now they're at this point where it's like, well, where are we going to go from here? And the way that they get going to, Jerusalem, to uh, Judea and Samaria is a little bit different than what we would think. They didn't just on their own volition go. It was actually persecution that sends them on their way. And so we're going to read in, in chapter 6 and 7 the stoning of Stephen, the first martyr, someone who was proclaiming God's word, ultimately died, and then people scattered. And what we get to in chapter 8, so fast forwarding just a little bit, when you get to chapter 8, we're going to read this. On that day, this is the day that Stephen died, which we'll get to, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. So they didn't go, but God found a way to get them to go. And godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. And so really this last half of six and this half of seven, and this chapter seven is really like a pivotal turning point in the whole book of Acts. Because several things are going to happen, and we're going to read this sermon that, that Stephen gives, and several things happen here that really turn people in a different direction. 
First thing is they start going from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria, right? The center of Christianity starts to move outward. Second thing that happens is they start to meet not in the temple, because to this point in Jerusalem, much of the activity that we'd read in Acts uh, through chapter 6 is taking place at the temple, and there's this kind of decision point that happens here soon between is this the same thing as Judaism, or does Christianity become its own thing? And ultimately what happens, we pick up after this persecution, and that's why I titled this The Turning Point. This chapter is the turning point where Christianity becomes, starts to become its own thing. There's a civil and a ceremonial and the uh, moral laws of the Old Testament. And you're going to see through this next bunch of chapters that we're going to read over the next two months together and study the next two months that they start to wrestle with in their Judaism, which of these laws do we need to, to continue with? And you're going to see that they settle where we say we're going to keep the moral laws, but the civil laws and these ceremonial laws we no longer need. We don't have to continue to practice these sacrifices because Jesus is our final sacrifice. And these moral laws begin to, or the the civic laws begin to come into question too because now you'll start to see in these chapters where Gentiles come to put their faith. And so I say, well, now how do we deal with the Gentile Christians? Do they have to do all the things that we believed and did in the law as Jews? And so all this takes place in these next couple chapters, and the turning point is the sermon that Stephen gives and what happens as a result. So let me pray for us, and we'll look at this sermon of Stephen. Father, uh, we just ask that you'd speak to us today. Uh, you know that I've actually had a pretty hard time uh, working on this passage this week, and, and don't feel uh, great about it, uh, but you are the one who speaks, and so we invite you to speak. Uh, we pray that we would learn from this pivotal, pivotal point in the history of your church to inspire us, encourage us, speak to us each individually because you know our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me ask a question to get started. How many of you like change? No? Jason. I, I, I kind of believe Jason would like change. Yeah, I could see that. Most of us don't like change though, right? Like simple changes, like I'm like a super routine person, so if you know me really well, like any sort of disruption of my routine like really bothers me. So Wednesday was an awful day for me because I had, of course, my to-do list and everything I planned to do on Wednesday, which didn't include talking to the IRS for an hour and a half, my car breaking down, my TV and internet going out. So those weren't part of my plans. And so it was an awful day. I don't like change. But that's just simple things like little daily things. What about more significant changes like maybe a career change? It's pretty difficult, right? Like you're you're setting on a new path, or maybe it's a forced career change. You've lost your job, and now you're like, what am I going to do next? Or for you students, it's graduation that's coming up, and something brand new. Change is coming. But probably the worst kind of change is the change of actually changing what you believe. Have you ever had to wrestle through that? Like actually someone confronting you with a different worldview or a different point, and have you ever changed what you believe? Or have you ever been talking with someone, trying to get someone else to change what they believe? That's the hardest kind of change. And so what we're going to see in this story is that Stephen is presenting the gospel in a way that for the first time, well, partially the first time, the Jewish people are beginning to see the difference between this message that's being proclaimed in Judaism to the degree that there's some, some are willing to change, but many say, no, we're not going to go there. And Stephen's one of the first ones to really make it clear in his sermon. So it's a whole topic about change. Real quick on Stephen, uh, before we get to where, where we bring him up. If you know, the church was growing in Jerusalem. All of Jerusalem uh, heard the gospel, they said. And then the church was growing by thousands and thousands and thousands. And how many of you know when you start to get bigger and bigger and bigger, it causes problems, right? 
That's one of the things I love about the Bible and I love about Acts and the Gospels and these narratives because they don't leave out the bad things that happen. And so in Acts chapter 6, one of the bad things that happens is as they begin to grow, some of the widows that were supposed to be getting, giving food, this distribution of food, weren't getting fed. And so it's kind of like the first problem in the church. And so they gather together and they say, get the leaders together and say, what can we do? And they appoint Stephen, among others, to actually start caring for these widows. And so in one way, Stephen was like a waiter or was like an administrator of a system of distributing food. And so that's the Stephen that we, that we read last fall, and now we pick up this part of Stephen's life in chapter 6, verse 8. It says this about Stephen. Now, Stephen was full of God's grace and power. He performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from the members of the synagogue of the freedom, as it was called, Jews of, the Cy- Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the province of uh, Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up to the wisdom that Stephen gave, that the wisdom that the Spirit gave him as he spoke. We won't spend a lot of time on this, but I love just to just think about the character of Stephen, the words of Stephen, the acts of Stephen, because it describes him in such an awesome way of his character, that he was just full of grace and he was full of power. And that, not just his character, but what he actually demonstrated, because God was using him to perform signs and wonders, which really was probably like freeing people from demons or, or being a part of seeing people be healed. And not only was he doing things with his actions, he was doing things with his words because his words were what was speaking to them and arguing with them, and no one could stand up against the wisdom that the Spirit gave Stephen. And I think this is really the three things that we need, like as a, as a just kind of a side note, the three things that we need is we want to grow in our witness to our friends and our communities. It's the character that we see in Stephen. We see him demonstrating the gospel by what he did and how he treated people. And then, of course, his words. You hear us sometimes at Midtown Church, we talk about people groups, that we all want to identify people in our lives that God's put us around, kind of like our Jerusalem, you could say. And one of the things that we encourage you to do is to to live a godly life among those people. Be a witness just by your actions. And then to demonstrate the gospel with your actions and with your words. And here Stephen's doing all of these things. But it causes quite a ruckus. So let's get to the the core part of the conflict. What was it that got these people so upset? And what was it that Stephen was saying that actually caused for them to realize, you're asking me to change and I don't think I want to do that? Here's the accusation that they make. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we've heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law, and they seized Stephen, and they brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we've heard him say, this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. And all who were sitting with the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen and they saw that his face was like that of an angel. So I wanted to try to grab these two things, like what were the main things that they were bringing against him, somewhat falsely, but they were taking things that he did say and then accusing him of, of things, adding on to it more than what he really said. But the two issues at hand was the law of God and the temple. Like those are the two things that were so threatening that Stephen was obviously teaching something that made them think that he was blaspheming the law, that Stephen was probably teaching that you didn't have to obey all the things in the law particularly the ceremonial parts, because Jesus is our sacrifice, so we don't have to come to the temple anymore. And so they take that and they misinterpret it to say that he thinks the temple's awful and, and we want to destroy it. These are the two issues that are at the heart of the change, that he would be, like it says here, against this holy place and against the law. So let's look at each of those just kind of independently. The law. 
Like, what was it that Stephen was saying against the law? What was it that the, that the early Christians were saying about the law? Well, you see it in the very first sermon. When, when Peter gives his very first sermon in Acts chapter 2, at the very end of it, they're like, well, what must we do? And he simply says, you need to repent and be baptized for forgiveness. So what do we need to do? We just need to repent, be, be baptized, put our faith in Christ, and he'll forgive all of our sins. The very next chapter, Peter, again, is in a sermon, and, and he closes his sermon this way, repent so that your sins may be wiped out saying, how do you get right standing with God? You just repent and receive Christ by faith that your sins can be made, made clean. Sins can be wiped away. And in Acts chapter 4, he says, salvation comes from no other name but the name of Jesus. And this was the gospel that was going forward. And this was offensive to the Jews because they had built their whole lives trying to obey the law. And their view of getting righteousness before God, getting right before God, was can I obey these laws? And they put their whole life into it. And for someone to say that you don't have to obey these laws, that you can simply come to Christ and through faith have all of your sins be wiped out. Do you really want to have right standing with God? Just put your faith in Him. And this was an offense to those who were trying to work their way to God by obeying the law. As Christian theology forms in the book of Acts, you're going to see that they start to teach that, that Jesus was the fulfillment of the law. And the law itself, what it was really meant to do was it meant, was meant to show us our need for a Savior that we might call out to Him. And so there's nothing wrong with the law. Stephen wasn't blaspheming the law like they would say, but he would point people to the law is just meant to reveal your sin and your need for a Savior, that you would call out to Him and get right with God by Jesus' blood, by Jesus' sacrifice. Paul would write this to the Romans when he was looking back, thinking of the, the Jewish people that he was ministering to. He says, brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God is for the Israelites that they may be saved, for I can testify about them that they're very zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness of God, they sought to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the culmination of the law, so there may be righteousness for everyone who what? Who believes. This was the heart of the message that was so offensive. Stephen was saying that the way that we get righteousness with God, the way that we get into God's presence is just by faith. That's where we get our right standing with God. And this just goes against all religion, right? It goes against the Jews who are trying to follow the law. It would, it would go against Islam and trying to find the five pillars to get our way to God. It would go against even the religions that aren't necessarily seeking God but are seeking no suffering like Hinduism or Buddhism, Buddhism that have the, the eightfold path. It goes against our human nature, even the irreligious people among us, our friends that, that we talk to, Many of them have a way, a law unto themselves that they think, well, if I just do these things, this is what gets me right standing with God. I got to uh, share the gospel with a guy in, in my people group recently, and, and that was the crux of our conversation. Like when it got down to it, he believed that, that there was a just and a loving God, but that the only way that you would get to heaven would be that you work your way to it. And I tried to talk to him, well, what's good enough? And how do you know if you're good enough? And I tried to say like, that this is the good news of the gospel is that we're never good enough. We just put our faith in him. And that's what gets us right standing before God, but he would not have it. He said, no, 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 that's too easy. We've got to do this, this, and this. And it was an offense to him. We can't work our way to God, and that's what Stephen was saying. But on to the temple, the second part of his argument. Stephen would have likely been talking about the need that there's no need for sacrifice, because here at this temple, where the early church was gathering and mixing and mingling, there wasn't a distinction as much between Judaism and what we now know as Christianity. It starts to become this divide because now we go to the temple, but we don't go because we don't need a sacrifice. 
We no longer need a priest to go make the sacrifice atonement that gives us forgiveness for our sins because Christ is the ultimate sacrifice. And so when you start to talk like this to these Jewish people about the temple, this place that was their place of worship, the place symbolic for them that this is how we get right standing with God is by making these sacrifices. And we have priests that do this for us, and they're our intercessors. When a few chapters earlier, when, when Peter would preach that, no, Jesus is the only way that we get to God. He is the only way. They're going to start to say, well, then what do we need these priests for? What do we need this temple for? What's the purpose of it? And it becomes an offense. And as the theology develops in the book of Acts and the, and the rest of the New Testament, people begin to realize that Jesus is our high priest, and there's no longer need for priests. I'll read here from Hebrews 9, a little long passage, but it describes the, the theology of the temple not being what it was to the Jewish people. It says, but when Christ came as the high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through a greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, it's not part of creation. He did not enter by the means of blood of goats and calves. He entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and these ashes and heifers sprinkled on those who are unceremonially uh, or ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of the new covenant, that those, who called, uh, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, now that he's died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. So the theology that Jesus is our high priest, he's the only one that gets us right before God. We're going to see in a minute the reason that Stephen was actually stoned is some of the last things that he said was he said, I see Jesus standing before God. And the idea to these Jews that Jesus would be our mediator, that Jesus is standing before God, they couldn't accept it. So the big issue is change. It's change. And can you imagine like having grown up in, in a faith and now someone's telling you to change it? Can you imagine like if, if, if you're really to believe this, then you've got to believe that the faith of your fathers wasn't correct. Like, this is what's happening. This is what's stirring up the anger within them. And it's hard to change. It's easy to manage change, like in my bad day on Wednesday. It may be easy to manage change of moving or careers or things like that, but changing what you actually believe is extremely difficult. Uh, Jake and I are taking a, a class at Wheaton, through uh, Wheaton College with a bunch of pastors here in Austin. And then the elders are reading this book. This is a book we had for the class, and the elders are reading. It's called I Once Was Lost. It's kind of a, a they did tons of interviews of how people, postmodern people came to faith, and they've really created what they call like five thresholds, five kind of things that happen in someone's journey to actually believing and putting their faith in Christ. I think we might have them up here. But the first one is just trusting a Christian. Like the first step would be that somewhere along their, their journey, they met a Christian that they trusted. This, by the way, is why we love doing something like Supper Club because that's the first step, just, just getting and befriending people and loving each other to where they can trust you. And then the next step is becoming curious, like they might actually be curious about what you believe. They're not, they don't really want to go there, but they at least want to know what you believe. And then the third one is open to change, which I'll get to in a minute. Then they're seeking God and following God. But they say really clearly, as they've done all this study, the very hardest step is this openness to change, like getting someone to a point where they're actually really considering changing what they believe. I'll read a little excerpt from it. 
It says, but we found <clears throat> that for everyone who easily makes a transition from being uh, curious to being truly open, there are more who struggle to become open to change or who never do, but just walk away from the journey of faith altogether. Out of all the five thresholds, becoming genuinely open to change is the most difficult to overcome. Change is beautiful and horrific, after all. Even postmodern folks who, pro who proudly wave the banner of openness, being open to change is a tough thing. Always has been, always will be. Remember the rich young ruler? This guy wanted to hang out with Jesus and follow him around. He seemed to have trusted Jesus, threshold one. He came to Jesus with real questions and curiosity, threshold two. He was ready for anything. Come on, Jesus, give me your best shot. But when Jesus took it, took it deeper to see if he was really open to change in his life, in this case, rethinking his relationship with money by selling all his possessions and giving everything to the poor, the trusting, curious man walked away sad. Turns out he was not open as he thought he was. Why? Well, he had much wealth. And this is sort of ex explains his behavior. Change has always been hard, so becoming open to change is tricky business. Despite how often or how beautiful openness as a concept is held up and celebrated in postmodern context, real change is plain difficult. Becoming open to change is tough, the toughest threshold to cross. I've seen this to be true. I'm sure that you have as well. And this is what's presented before them. This is what's causing this conflict, a conflict that's ultimately going to lead to Stephen's death. But before it does, he actually gets one more sermon in, <laughs> in front of them. And so if you were to get to Acts chapter 7, you'd read this sermon. It's actually the longest sermon in Acts. Acts is actually like a series of sermons. You'll see as we walk through the, the book of Acts, this is the longest one. Like this is, this is like longer than Jake teaches on a Sunday. It's like really, really, really long. And so I'm not going to read it, all right? I'm not going to read it because um, it is about 70 verses. But let me just give you kind of an outline of it and make a few points about it overall. Uh, it's really kind of an Old Testament survey. He takes them all the way back to Abraham and leads them to the point of the temple, okay? So he's, he's mentioning all the different characters, the ones that these uh, Jewish people would be very familiar with. And his main points are these two. One is that God can be worshiped anywhere, thus the threat of the temple. He's going to make the point that God can be worshiped anywhere. And the second point is that God does require change. God does require change. So he starts with this whole idea of God can be worshiped anywhere by referencing several different people. So he mentions Abraham, and he talks about how God spoke to Abraham in both Mesopotamia and in Haran. He talks about Joseph and how Joseph heard from God in Egypt. He talks about Moses and how Moses heard from God in Egypt and Midian and at Mount Sinai. He talks about the Israelites as a whole, how they heard from God as they crossed the Red Sea and how they were led by, a led, led by fire and cloud and, a, and they had a tabernacle to hold God's presence. He talks then about David and Solomon and how they had the tabernacle and ultimately the temple. Each of these subtle references to God being able to speak to people that he spoke to people throughout history. And the temple's not the only place where God can be found. And then he makes this statement near the end of his sermon in 748 through 50. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? So he's quoting there God and saying, look, this temple's a great place, but God is so much bigger than the temple. God can be worshiped anywhere. And the temple's not that important anymore. 
This was a big threat to the Jewish people. If you think about it, one of the things that Jesus was accused of that led to his death was saying that, the, that he would tear down the temple and build it back up in three days. And they're again accusing Stephen of saying that he would destroy the temple. This means everything to them. They had this whole system of their laws in the Jewish law. There was both the civil and the ceremonial and the moral, like I said. The civil would be what kind of defined them as a nation, rules of law to kind of govern them as a people, as a country. But as Christian theology develops through the rest of these chapters that we're going to read, more and more people outside the Jewish faith start coming to faith. And so they start asking the question, well, what does it mean for all these civil laws? Because this isn't really like a Jewish religion anymore. It's the idea is that, no, now we are the body of Christ. And these civil laws, because the body of Christ goes around the world, no longer apply. The same was true of the ceremonial laws. The ceremonial laws of how we're to worship and how we're to make sacrifices and get rightness with God, they're all wiped away because our faith in Christ is what gets us right with God. And so in these chapters that we'll read from 7 to 12, you're going to see the church wrestling with these issues. And ultimately to where Paul would write this when he's writing in the book of Ephesians, he's actually writing, talking about the reconciliation of Jews and Gentiles and what the church looks like now that we're not just a Jewish people. And he would write it this way, Ephesians 2, consequently, you're no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people, members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling by which God lives by his spirit. There's no more need for a temple. Like we are the body of Christ and, and Christ indwells us and we are the temple. Radical change of theology is being forecast by Stephen. And then the second thing that he says in this long sermon is that God, God does require change. God does require change. And he would use the examples of, again, going back to Abraham, that Abraham heard God and, and did what God said. He changed. He moved. <laughs> Joseph heard God and did what he said. Moses heard God and did what he said. Joshua heard God, did what he said, David and Solomon. But at the same time, he's telling these stories of these people that these Jewish people would have known. He also points out that there's Joseph's brothers who rejected Joseph, who rejected God. There's Pharaoh and the Egyptians who would not listen to God. There's Israel at Mount Sinai when, Jesus, when, when Paul, uh, not Jesus, Paul, that'd be Moses, <laughs> when Moses is actually receiving the law in that very time when, when Moses is with God receiving the law, Israel's building a golden calf, and he brings up that story. And he talks about how all of them had killed all the prophets that God had sent. And then he ends his sermon, or you could say in some ways the sermon was ended for him when he said this last word, Acts 7, 51 and 52. You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You're like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet like your, uh, prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, and now you've betrayed and murdered him. Yeah, that'll end a sermon. <laughs> like, you stiff-necked people. You and all your fathers have been rejecting God from the time that he's come. That's hard. He's telling them that you have to believe and you have to change. And this is what I'm calling you to do. Change is hard, right? I'm really amazed. Like when I think about the life of our church, I just thought of a few people. I thought about uh, some of y'all remember Zohab. And, and like a guy who 
came to faith in Christ through this church from a Muslim background. He wrestled with his change and was open to change and, and repented and believed and put his faith in Jesus. Or I think of a friend, Persana, who grew up at Hindu. And, and just a couple years ago, he put his faith in Christ and at the risk of rejection of, of his family, but was openness to change. Or I think of Shen Shen, uh, a Chinese girl who put her faith in Christ from an atheist kind of godless culture who started investigating and was open to change and, and her life was changed. Like that's the type of change that these people are having to wrestle with. That's why they're so angry. That's why they're ultimately going to stone Stephen. I think about my own life. Many of you guys might be in this boat too where it wasn't like a radical change like from a different religion, but one of the changes that happens most often is God's going to call you to step away from something. And so when I first put my faith in Christ, there was one particular behavior in my life that I knew that if I was going to follow Christ, I was going to have to stop doing this and give it up. And I knew that that was what I wrestled with for months. Like if I say yes to Jesus, that means I have to say no to this. And ultimately I did. And so there's probably many of us that this would be your story. It wouldn't be necessarily like you've changed from a whole other religion, but you've changed from something. Well, when God first put the gospel into your heart, when you first started learning the good news that you could get right with God by putting your faith in Christ, you maybe wrestled with, if I do this, well, I'm probably going to have to stop doing this. I'm probably going to have to end this relationship. Or I'm probably going to have to start forgiving people that have hurt me because I've been forgiven. Whatever it is for all of us, we probably all wrestle with that same call of change that when the gospel comes to us, it calls us to change. And that's exactly what these people didn't want to do. And so we get now to his murder. On 54, 754, when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and they gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at his right hand. And he said, look, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. In other words, yes, Jesus is my mediator. And at this, they covered their ears and they yelled at the top of their voices and they rushed him. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold the sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. So the response is, is furious when he kind of digs the... <laughs> knife in a little bit deeper by saying, I see Jesus. He's right there. He's ready to receive me. This is where I get my righteousness from God. They stone him. And I love that it says that, that he prayed for them. Doesn't it sound much like Jesus? In fact, this whole story sounds a lot like the trial of Jesus with the, the false testimonies and the, the same type of accusations. Even these last words, his last word, confidence in Jesus to save him. Receive my spirit. And then like Jesus who prayed, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He prays something so similar. Lord, don't hold this against them. So real was the forgiveness of Christ in Stephen's life and that as he's being stoned, he can think of others and not himself and ask that God would forgive them. One of the things that's really powerful to think about, this is kind of a turning point in one other way in the whole book of Acts. It's a turning point because now we're first getting introduced to this guy named Saul. He's going to become Paul. And what if it was actually... The prayer of Stephen, don't hold this against them, God, that spared God's judgment upon a guy like Saul, who later we're going to find in a couple chapters, he was open to change. And God grabbed his heart, perhaps in response to the very prayer of Stephen. 
This is what they were up, what Stephen was up against. And then we go back now to chapter 8, and we read again to remind you of this turning point. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen, mourning deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged them off, both men and women, and put them in prison. Again, this is a turning point in the book of Acts. It's a turning point because they're moving from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, which means now the church is going to start to be more and more filled with those who aren't Jewish. It's a turning point from the temple to now they're starting to meet in house to house. They were meeting in houses in Jerusalem as well, but they still had the public gatherings in the temple. And then really what's going to happen as we continue through this series the next two months, we're going to see the whole theology of the church begin to take shape about what does it mean now that we're a global church, that God is reaching people from every tribe and every tongue, all these different places where God would send them sent with love. So back in closing just to the topic of change. These people weren't willing to change, but I love that as you continue through the book of Acts, there are many that were willing to change. In fact, we started in chapter 6, verse 8. If we go back to chapter 6, verse 7, this is what we would read. This is the end of the, the, work in, the, the work in Jerusalem. So the word of the Lord spread, and the number of the disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. So there's even priests, like, like spiritual leaders who are open to change and who God grabbed their heart, and they put their faith in Christ, and they changed. And now in our world today, there's 2.2 billion Christians in the world. That's 31% of the population. And what's ironic about the whole thing is that some of the places where there's the most growth of the church are in the places where people are being killed for their faith. Like this is just the first among many throughout history. I did a little simple research today or this week, and I looked at it, and each month there's 322 Christians that are killed for their faith. There are 214 churches and Christian properties that are destroyed and 722 forms of violence that are committed against Christians. Like this gospel that started in Jerusalem and went to Judea and Samaria has now gone to much of the earth. And people are risking their lives in faithfulness to Christ. And people are open to change and change their mind and putting their faith in Christ all around the world, even in these places where there's persecution. So knowing that there's those that, like Stephen, are counting their costs that way, I just ask, ask you, like, are you open to change? Whatever little thing God's calling you to, if you've not ever put your faith in Christ and you're, you're not really a Christian yet, are you open to change? You could put your faith in Christ, like, today. Just say, yes, Jesus, I, I receive you. I put my faith in you to give me forgiveness for my sins. You could do that while we take communion. Whatever else is stirring in your heart, it might not be the step of faith of change for salvation because most of you have put your faith in Christ, but likely there's something else in your life right now that God has been speaking to you, and you know that what it's going to require is change. That's really what this word repent is. It's just to change your mind. And so as we take communion, I just encourage you to, to come before God and just ask God, is there anything that, that you would want me to change? And ask God to give you an open heart to change. When Jesus gave this, this covenant that we, we read about uh, um, or talked about a few weeks ago in the Meals with Jesus, he was actually calling for change. 
If you remember when, when Jake spoke that week, it was, a, it was a new covenant. He was taking the old ways that the Jewish people had practiced Passover and putting himself into it. And he said, I have a new covenant for you. And this covenant is my blood that's poured out for you. It's my body that's broken for you. And do this in remembrance of me. You could also, as we take communion, remember and think about the global church and that there's two billion people around the world that are likely taking communion at the same time because that's how great our God is to go after all people. Let me close this in prayer. We have communion up here in the front or in the back. Uh, as the worship plays, you can come anytime during those songs to receive communion and take at your own pace. Father, uh, change is really hard. And we ask, God, if there's anything that you're speaking to us now that you give us the courage to change, that we would say yes to you. Ask, too, that for our, our brothers and sisters that are around the world being persecuted, would you strengthen them? Would you give them your perseverance and let them, even as Stephen saw, your, your welcoming face, your standing to receive him, would they live for that audience of one and, and know that you'll receive them? God, finally, if there's, if there's anyone here or even some people, maybe not here, that, just, that we think of that have yet to put their faith in you, have yet to make that change, uh, man, we ask that you would stir their hearts, that they would trust you and know that you're good and turn toward you. Be present with us, God, as we, as we worship in these songs and take communion today. In Jesus' name, amen.